Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Godzilla Pod War Hour. My name is Michael Kelly. Uh, with us, as always, my valued friend, co-host, collaborator, uh, you know, and just all-around nice guy, Nathan Bear. Nathan, how you doing? I'm fine, Mike. I'm just, just, just fine. You know, he's doing good. He's doing good. Uh, we're here to talk about a, f- a very special film today. But before we get into that, we we have a, a special guest and a individual I've known for three years. A uh, man who actually we've collaborated in a couple of of short films, which are sort of confusing and and p- make people concerned about my general mental health. Uh, but he was great in them. And the important thing is, it only took one roofie drink to get him here tonight. Uh, so, ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Jack Kapler. Jack Thank you Kapler. for having me. Thank you very much. Jack, wonderful. Uh, well, you know what? Let's get down to it. We're here to talk about Atragon. Atragon. Which is a movie about a submarine called the Go Tango. Go Tango, yes. Or uh, the Atragon. I should say Atragon, a.k.a. Kaite Gunken, undersea battleship in Japanese. Um, still not sure why we call it Atragon. I guess you know, A, something about the A, maybe that'll look. Evidently it was a Toragon, and uh, I think it meant something like, a Toragon meant something like Atomic Dragon. Like it was some kind of like oh. portmanteau-ish uh, thing that con- con- connotated atomic dragon, and mm. so then AIP released the movie, and they sort of forced the shorting, uh, forced the shortening of the word into atragon. Ah, because uh, you know simple-minded way. Americans can't deal yeah. with too many syllables. Much in the same way that uh, radon become became Rodan. Uh-huh. They just switch the words around again for either marketing or simplicity purposes. They they felt free to do that a lot. Yeah, um, you know, just like look, this is an American audience. They're just here to forget about the fact that they're working for fifteen cents an hour. That's correct. <laughs> Hashtag early nineteen sixties. <laughs> um, the film came out in nineteen sixty three, really at the sort of the early part of the peak. Of the, or maybe I guess mid peak of of the Toho science fiction epics. It wasn't quite because I think can we say it was basically over by like 1968. Definitely by like 1970, it was it was done. Oh yeah. But like this, you know, we're still kind of that second wave of of the really solid films, excellent production values, great score by Ufuku Bay, and multiples of these. Like this is one of several films to come out within the same years. You know, King Kong versus Godzilla, not too long before. Year right before Mothra versus Godzilla. So this is like when they had like the money to do this. The year after is Mothra versus Godzilla. Sixty four. Sixty four. This there is the go. year before nineteen sixty four. Very good. So. The um the the fact that they had the money to do this, as well as co-fund, you know, Kurosawa's Red Beard at the same time. You know, you can have your meat and pudding at the same time. You know, so this like just shows you like the power of the Japanese studio system. You know, at this point already going through what they called the Nuberu Bagu or the Japanese New Wave. So, uh, yeah, like this was just a very sexy yet sleazy time uh, for the movies. I would like to add one thing, which is uh, they apparently made this movie, they they sort of greenlit it um, for the winter for the winter movie season, which I think 
uh, indications suggest that that was kind of the equivalent of what we think of as uh, the summer season. But even now in America, the Christmas season is sort of summer two uh, for the movie business. Like that's when you're going to release some you know Christmas movies. You're going to you know people are going to be on holiday. And in fact, this movie was released uh, in December. Uh, late December of 1963, uh, w- about one month after Kennedy was assassinated, John F. Kennedy was assassinated in the U.S. Exactly. And then it was month, not. Yeah. And then it was not released in America, uh, or I should say, the United States, until uh, it looks like March of 1965. You know, uh, which is really almost a completely different uh, global political climate in a lot of ways i mean you know you have a, and 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 also by this time we say by the time it happened okay the beatles had really arrived in the united states so different you know i'd say there's a difference between 1963 into 1963 and 1965 anyway the difference is 1964 i've talked about this with uh uh co-host from or guest host from son of godzilla uh tom beto about how 1964 is like the key year it definitely united states culture but almost like world culture and we can see reflections of that even in the in the godzilla series you know that's when mothra versus godzilla came out that's when get rid of the three-headed dragon came Mm -hmm. out that's when the beatles stuff started coming out you know as jack mentioned uh 11 63 john f kennedy is assassinated this came out exactly one month uh, later, uh, mm-hmm. December twenty second, nineteen sixty three. So, the United yes. States gets a heavier involvement in Vietnam. Everything you know just changes. The sixties, as we know it, have really. This is where it begins in earnest. The sixties that we think of in a pop culture, uh, you know, from the sort of the pop culture history. Um, this is where we're right at the beginning. You know, death of Kennedy. Yeah. Whereas in Japan, with this film, uh, it talks about, uh, it brings up the question of where is Japan now? Uh, which is something that other monster films, including Godzilla, was playing with, you know, in 1954. But now, nine years later, you know, it's dealing with the former militarism that was in Japan and, like, how far. They've come since the end of World War II. So this film deals with uh, you know, people's, I guess, uh, strained relations with militarism. Uh, you know, same year, you have a film by Ozu, his last film, called uh, An Autumn Afternoon. And in that film, you have two old soldiers in a bar drinking... And one of them says, you know, if we had won the war, we'd be in New York right now, drinking, you know, real American alcohol. You know, and he said, you know, if we if we had won the war, you know, all, all, all the uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Westerners would be chewing gum and playing the shamisen, whereas now all the young people are wearing short skirts and shaking their 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 things to rock and roll and the other soldier says yeah it's a good thing we lost so there's this you know the the culture has shifted japan is no longer what it was 20 even 30 years ago it completely changed you know uh, 
I mean, can I just say that I think At- Atragon, uh, it's a very entertaining movie yeah. and a very well-made movie, but I think it's at, it's also, there's this element to it that's absolutely fascinating. Yeah. Uh, well, it, like it's... Like, thoroughly. For, it, 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 not only just the smorgasbord of, of, of influences and things that went into it, yeah. like the, how it was made and, 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 you know, where it came from, but also the conflicts of the characters and their motivations are... I'm going to say way more complicated and and you know intricate than your average kaiju film. And technically, this is a kaiju movie because Manda, yeah. who would later be in Destroy All Monsters and Godzilla's Revenge, is in it. But you know, it's it, it's almost like a James Bond movie, yeah. but more complicated. Than well, that. it's it's the grafting because the source material, as you mentioned, is like multiple. So it's like loosely based on a. Jules Verne-esque novel from Japan from the early 20th century, right before the war with Russia, uh, as well as elements of, as I mentioned, militarism and dealing with what is Japan today uh, and the people who just can't let go of the past. So all of this is grafted, you know, and at the center of it is actually a simple story about a woman and her father who don't see eye to eye. That's the basic story. Just like Star Wars, as amazing as it is, is really just a simple story about a father and a son who don't see eye to eye. Right. Um, so, as Jack mentioned, it was made in a, a few months, I think about a nine-month production schedule. Or you said it was, it was in the spring? Short. No, I think they got greenlit in... I think they got greenlit in... May May of sixty three and it was they had to get the show on the road really quickly and uh and knock it out for that release by December twenty second, nineteen sixty three, which they managed to do. Um and uh I would say, you know, if you would just look, if you were doing uh, Samuel Beckett on stage, you know, it'd be a bit of a rush with the rehearsing, but with the added effects of the day and this was an effects movie uh was it the takusatsu Egu, or i think it's ej suburaya yeah it's i mean it's an effects movie a special effects movie and so they did a pretty bang up job i have to say i mean that was my sense this is this is one of the first really I think home runs for like the the what would become the key four of the Godzilla series, which is Honda directing, and then Tanaka producing, and then Sekizawa writing the script, mm-hmm. and then Subaraya. Well, I mean, I, I I count Afuku Bay, so maybe he's five. Whatever yeah. those five guys in general, you know, if they're involved, it's going to be good. But this is, you know, this is one of the first Sekizawa type scripts. I yeah. mean, um, so, th- and this is as certainly as, as good as any of their other efforts and, and polished and interesting and, and really kind of pulls you in, even though, you know, the really, there, there's a ton of action in this movie, but mm-hmm. it's all sort of in the, the back half of it. Yeah. And, and really for the first, I mean, you don't even see, we clocked it. I mean, the Atragon doesn't even show up until like the 46 minute mark. Yeah. Or something. Well, this is a time when people would pay to like watch an interesting story. You know, you're here to see the characters develop. You know, uh, and you're rewarded in the end with a decent amount of action. You know, but this is like because uh, Honda, Sekizawa, Kurosawa all came from this like same previous like 
school at Toho, basically, where it's just like, this is how action is supposed to unfold. And they toyed with that in their own way, you know. But if you see a film also like Seven Samurai, which is a good two hours longer than Atragon, you still have the same sense that, like, the action comes towards the end. You're, like, teased with it throughout. Like, you know something's coming, but you first have to, like, get to know all the characters first. Then, once you know what all the characters can do, what their feelings are on said matter, whether it's a village under attack or the world under siege by an un- subterranean <laughs> sea people. The, uh, the, the Muians. The Muians, you know, it, it, it's the same thing. You first have to understand what's going on, then you can understand the actions that they take. I'd like to also say that, you know, at this time period, um, I was talking about this with somebody the other day, You know, movies were not this, you know, even though you think of, like, studio bosses in Hollywood even back then being, like, kind of rough and tumble and, like, listen, cut out the odd. We want this thing done. We got to get in the theater. You know, like, these guys were comfortable with having pretty long movies by today's standards. Uh, uh, There's a comedy movie with Jack Lemmon called The Great Race from the 60s. And that movie goes on for, I think it's, like, two hours and 50 minutes or something and uh maybe even a little longer and uh you know everybody who's gone with the wind back in the late 30s was long and that was long for its day but even into the 60s it's a mad 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 world Mm. it's a comedy (laughs) the great race it's a comedy what if you were going to say look you're running a studio you have you don't know anything else about drama you know you haven't been sitting around with you know uh, you know, whatever, Lajo Segri and, uh, you know, the um, Mankiewicz brothers or whatever, you know, and you're like, hey, which of these movies should be the shortest? The drama, the action adventure, the this? You'd be like, oh, it's the comedy. Keep that shit short. But, like, you know what? They weren't afraid to keep these movies long. It wasn't that everything was a regimented 81 minutes like it is today or even less. Yeah. And thank you for mentioning it's a mad, 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 mad world. Because there is a seven-hour cut of that movie that's around someplace. It's probably in, like, the safe of the Hollywood mogul who has the good version of the end of The Godfather 3. Probably uh, right next to uh, (laughs) The Day the Clown Cried. Yeah, The Day the Clown Cried. (laughs) Uh, And also King Kong Goes to Edo. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, but I heard that, in fact... It was Eric von Stroheim they originally wanted to get to direct It's a Mad, 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 Mad World. And the first cut of his actually was about 50 hours long, which went beyond even greed. (laughs) The silent flick, which was 24 hours and had to be cut down to like, I don't even know what, 17 minutes or whatever of, you know. Anyway. (laughs) They fired him off the project. You know, I don't know who it was. Harry Cohn was like, get the fuck out of here, Von Stroheim, or whatever studio. No, that was. wasn't Von Stroheim. Uh, no, that was. That was Eric Von Stroheim. Who am I thinking of? Von Sternberg. Von Sternberg, yeah. They're, they're both nuts. And then they got together, and after Hitler lost, you know, the uh, CIA had to bring uh, Von Stroheim, Von Sternberg, and Werner Von Braun over to, like, create the rocket program down at the Manhattan, you know, the whole, you know, NASA. And so... 
That's there's a plaque of the three Vons they used to call them over uh, Tres Vanos. Cape uh, Canaveral, which led to the development of the atomic bomb, which, <laughs> when dropped on Hiroshima ten years later, would produce Godzilla, directed by Inshiro Honda, which would spur a movement of science fiction films in Tokyo, Japan. Yes, there you go. Not to mention years and years <laughs> of suffering and agony. So, shall we get into the plot here? Let's uh, get well, the basic plot. I just right really quick, I wanted to mention There's that, like, <laughs> okay, it's based. You said it's based on a, a, a sort of a series of uh, very popular uh, and very well regarded uh, adventure novellas or, or sort of short stories by Shunru Ashikawa uh, about uh, the the submarine mm-hmm. Atragon. Yeah. Or Gotengo, whatever, or Ra, as it is later called in Super Atragon. The animated version. <laughs> um, but it is also mentioned, you know, the Atragon is fighting Mu, the Muians. Yeah. And, and the lost continent of Mu. And that was not involved in the original Atragon story. Yeah. That comes from um, a guy named uh, James Ch- Churchward. Uh, he wrote a book called The Lost Continent of Moo, Motherland of Man, in 1928. And that was sort of like the ultimate genesis of the conspiracy of like, you know, I mean, obviously, the Legends of Atlantis. And even at that point, Moo, the Legend of Moo, had been around for about 100 years. But yeah. he wrote a story about it like he had been there, like he had the inside information. And that sort of crystallized it as an idea that was then... All of these things later tapped into by uh, Sekizawa uh, when he was writing the script. By the way, all of these things were proven to be false. Uh, <laughs> much like the people who, you know, think the moon landing is a hoax or who can tell you three quick tricks to give you a bigger dick. I'll tell you what the one trick is. It's called Photoshop. Well, the problem <laughs> is, it, you know, the, the term lost continent, it takes around a million years to, quote, lose a continent, unquote, <laughs> geographically speaking, plate tectonics, yeah. okay? seismic and compression waves and what have you, the crust separating and stuff. So it's not like people are getting caught with like all their belongings in their hands running out and be like, oh my god, everything's collapsed. It's not like the beginning of Superman the movie. Where it's like, I told the elders this was going to happen. You know, it's five like... Five minutes ago. Right, you know, it's like, just five yeah, minutes. Yeah, it's not like a fucking earthquake, alright? It's like, you're going to see it coming. There's going to be several eons to address the problem. You'll be able to relocate as long as you basically have your shit together Maybe you know, you're not going to lose dick as long as you're organized it's called the maldives in the netherlands in 25 years that's what it's called the most devastating device the mind of man has yet created. It travels on land and in the sea. It tunnels through the earth. Its crew, all supermen with super weapons, can freeze their enemies and enslave them. Fire and fear are the gods of terror on the hidden continent. No thing, no man, 
no adventure can match the nine amazing wonders of Atragon, nor the massive powers of its allegoric destroyer. Wonders that challenge the imagination. The threatened attack has begun. The United Nations has set up a defense headquarters to cope with the new empire's aggression. You will see flying saucers. the world. Admiral Kusumi, I am agent number 23 of the Mu Empire. This earthquake is not accidental. Folks, we're going to dissect that plot. Woo! So, uh, the one thing I kept on thinking when I was watching the beginning of this movie is like, this is a very confusing series of events. Because it does start off on uh, I, what I guess is a taxi ride, but the, the car is totally unmarked. It just looks like a regular car. So it's a bit unclear whether it's like this a rich dude who's being driven around by his driver, or if this is just like the cleanest and classiest taxi cab ever, or this whatever. Is like... I guess cubism? It's like where all the pieces are there. You just kind of have to, in your head, just like put them all together and be like, oh, I get it now. After time passes, it's just like, oh, that, then that, then that. Oh, right. The, the, um, uh, the guy gets, there's a guy, the passenger of the cab gets kidnapped. It becomes clear that the driver is taking him someplace else and he tries to put his hands on the driver's neck but the the second he actually touches the driver's neck he's like oh hot like he burns his hands so it's immediately established that there's bad things afoot and bad this touch. guy <laughs> this guy is like really like has hot flesh he turns blue in fact it's like yeah. he's getting tased yeah um so that cuts immediately to a guy taking a picture, uh, but it, it's really it's our main character uh, who kind of takes us through a lot of the action. Even though his, um, you know, his his uh, his goals are at, at the first and for most of the movie, just to basically he's just a stalker. He's yeah. a fucking sleaze. He's, he's, he's a sleaze. He's a sleaze yeah. ball. Just but, to be like he <laughs> takes semi-pornographic photos of <laughs> women, and at that time he's got some woman. In a bouffant, in well, like before, a leopard before, print bikini, yeah, just standing the, there with his assistant, like slathering over. Well, the first thing is like this guy who's later to be revealed as assistant. It's it's just this guy who's got like an eye patch and like this coat and like this weird hat, kind of coming at him and shooting a gun at the camera. 
uh, you know, very uh, just ripping off the um, the great train robbery. And, you know, if you're going to rip off, you might as well do it from the best. Uh, but anyway, so it, that's a very startling image, and you see it through the lens of the camera, through the through the iris. So it's actually uh, the iris snaps and it flips upside down. So it's very dynamic, and again, it's a guy shooting a gun towards you. So again, it you know pull, it goes right from the kidnapping in the cab to this, and it really pulls you in. And it's immediately uh, revealed that it's, um, you know, it's the guy's assistant and there's a blank in the gun uh, or he missed. I don't know. And uh, then, you know, the assistant takes off the disguise. And then, as Jack uh, mentioned, a woman gets out of the car in this mink coat, drops the coat on the ground and barely has any clothing on at all. She's in an extremely small well, it must have been pretty scandalous for 1963, uh, bikini, yeah. and they start taking, like, fluff pictures. And it's at night. And it's yeah. at night. It's 20 it's minutes like, after midnight. They work for some, like, interest, special interest magazine, so I guess, like, pulp, you know, for, like, gangster yeah. stories and, you know, mm, bikini models doing nasty Tiger things. beat. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> and anyways, they're... Taking pictures in the classic, you know, just look off to the side and the bikini model sees this creature coming out of the water. Or it's, you know, it's basically a, a, a man in a, in a scuba suit, but it's a very strange scuba suit. It's silver and it's sort of covered in what amounts to very large sort of metallic, almost aluminum colored kind of scales. And there's some steam emanating off of him. And this, she's very concerned about this. And they all are. Um, and right around the same time, the car from earlier, when the guy was getting kidnapped, just comes in and careens off the side of this thing. And uh, it's all very um, dramatic. And then it cuts to the titles, uh, Atragon. And we hear some of Fukube's score. Uh, comes back to... The uh, the next day, there's a there's the kind of the police station, and these the 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 photographer and his friend. I wanted to say, uh, you know, for for Godzilla fans, these are the two guys from King Kong versus Godzilla. These are the guys who are on Faroe Island, and uh, you know, kind of a almost buddy comedy pair. And it's you know, it's the same year as as Kong versus Godzilla. With yeah. A little fiddling around with the characters' names, they could be the exact same characters because they like they act exactly the same. But the one guy is is sort of as we mentioned, this kind of the scumbag uh, main character, uh, and that is Hadanaka, played by Todao Takashima. And uh, you know, I think this is one of his only other sort of lead roles other than than King Kong versus Godzilla. And he does a fine job, but again, morally questionable. Yeah. Um, and basically, yeah, they, they talk to some of the uh, Toho regulars, uh, including the guy from, you know, the main character from Mothra and Mothra vs. Godzilla and Tokyo SOS, <laughs> who is just in all of these movies. He's in Ghidorah as well. Um, and they're sort of leading this investigation. And. They're giving the police, you know, the rundown of the ridiculous series of events, and uh, the assistant mentions that the guy looks like steam, or like the the man in the scuba suit, like, like vapor was like liquid in. vapor, which I didn't get at all. Maybe there was something in the translation. No, I think like there was vapor around him because there was steam, smoke, whatever, fart, wet gas surrounding yeah. this uh, 
potentially smelly individual. It's one of those things that happens from time to time in science fiction movies <laughs> where the you know, the description of the character has to like push the idea over the top if maybe the special effects from that scene didn't necessarily convey it, you know? This is the most spectacular thing I've ever seen yeah. in my entire life! As big as a battleship! Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I didn't really get... I mean, I was watching it pretty closely and it just looked like, you know, Oh my god, the car swerved, and wha-bam, the water, whoosh, like that was what I got out of it. Like, yeah. And then, like, uh, you know, the two photographers and this, the, the chick in the bikini pointing out, like, look, over there, you know, and um, and that scene where they're giving the cop the rundown, at least partly, there's all this stuff on a pier or something yeah. like that, and it's like, there's a cab driver, and he's got something to say, and there's the cop, and the cab driver's got a hat, and I, I didn't know who was who. I mean, yeah, I was yeah. like, who... How many people are involved in this scene? It was like a group scene where everybody saw something. Like, I don't even remember the cab driver seeing anything or being, what, you know. Anyway. Yeah, I think it was like attempting Rashomon. Yeah, it was like mini Rashomon out on the pier. You know? <laughs> yeah. Rashomon on the pier. That sounds like a good restaurant uh, <laughs> that I would never eat at. Because <laughs> um, no one could remember who had whose order. That's uh, right. <laughs> Um, Let me remember who killed the fish. <laughs> killed and raped the fish. Among- the fish wanted it. Uh, amongst these, like, 15 characters who are all sort of around this very busy and extremely confusing uh, dock police scene investigation scene, uh, one of them is the... Uh, his character's name is uh, Umino, but he's also known as the Moo Agent, and it's, it's Kenji Sahara. And, um, who but is hot. he, who is, who's so hot, and, but he looks like so strange, like his choice of dress in this movie, he looks like he's Amish, like he's got this, he's, this crazy beard. He's got like a beatnik vibe. Yeah, like, he's got but, the beatnik vibe. But he vibe. still has a beard, like a beard with no mustache, so yeah. it's like well, the Amish way, beatnik guy. He, he, looked, he like holds on his coat and it seems like it sometimes it feels like he's holding on the beard onto his face. Well, he's like, got like this hat and the red like plaid scarf. He looks like a Scottish like golf player. He looks like like Flint Hart Gloom Gold sort of. And he's he's a, he's a very uh it's one again one of these things where much like Nelson and Mothra, he's like uh, he tries not to be sneaky and yeah. he tries not to be obvious that he's like you know, maybe a, a bad guy or whatever, but mm. just just the way he insinuates himself into seeds is just like, well, I mean, he, he says, I'm a reporter. That's all yeah. he says. And later on, there's a scene where he talks to uh, Rear Admiral uh, Kazumi, uh, and he says that, you know, the name of his magazine is True Story Magazine, yeah. which I think is a kind of a funny little joke, yeah. in-joke there. I think that's what's so surprising in Godzilla versus Mechagodzilla when the reporter turns out to be the good guy and isn't trying to kill the main character. <laughs> just like, actually, I'm an Interpol agent. I'm really nice. I like pina coladas. And yes. <laughs> yeah, because this guy is like, anyways. But and, and he, uh, I work for Not Suspicious magazine. <laughs> so basically, like, you know the the. the the police get sort of done with their questioning. When our main character spots a, uh, I guess, in his mind, a hot piece of rear end making her way to a taxi cab, 
or no, making her way to a car. Uh, so he snaps a few photos, uh, and he's just like, I have to have her as my next model. Yeah. Um, and like the, the character, uh, her name is in the, in the film is, uh, Makato, but it's a Yoko, uh, Fujiyama. Um, but yeah, well, sorry, Jack. One thing is that it's not just that, oh, as this stuff's going on, suddenly he's like, he and, you know, uh, his partner see this woman. It's that he and his partner see this woman who's kind of got like a Jackie O thing happening. And he starts running yeah. towards her and just starts taking the photos like and like, you know, like, like right in front of her. Like, you know, like almost like he's ready to like, give me that pout, baby. Come on, come on, come on. Like he's just starting like picturing and like she's kind of like whatever and like moving and he just keeps taking pictures like in her face and like. I mean, it's it it is creepy. It is positively over the top. And then they get in the car and drive away fast. Like, who's this crazy guy? But frankly, not acting as uh, surprised and shocked and disturbed as I would think they should. And it was kind of like, oh yeah, you know, like I have uh, guys harassing me with cameras every day kind of thing. Even just though like Jackie O. Just <laughs> like Jackie O. Even though she's not a celebrity, she's just like kind of a secretary or something, as it turns out. Yeah. We find out she is a secretary for Rear Admiral Kasumi, played by Mr. Kenny O'Hara. You remember his work from, uh, Sound of the Mountain, as well as, um, Hiroshi Shimizu's, uh, 1936 classic, Mr. Thank You, where he plays Mr. Thank You, who, guess what, likes to say thank you a lot. So, yeah, so that's Mr. Ken O'Hara, who is now older and thus uh, perfect for uh, <laughs> a character in a Toho film. Before we, we get into the Rear Admiral's introduction, I, I do want to just say that there is another... The, the, the film stops when they see... Uh, Mikado and and these two characters go on this sort of stalking side tangent where like the it just cuts right to the dark room of them immediately developing the film yeah. of uh, of Mikado and, and being like well you know she's how are we gonna find her like this one girl in all of Tokyo or whatever and they're like aha but I took a picture of her license plate so now we can track her down and like. It's just this Nothing really skeezy when they finally find her, the guy gets on the phone and it's like the we found her phone call. And in the background is his assistant photographing some other half naked woman. And he's like, there's a lot of like telegraph, like silent movie acting kind of. And the guy kind of looks over like, you, like he's making this motion, like you want me to get all her clothes off, and he's like, no, no, not now, now. I'm on, on phone. I got the girl, you know. Like, no, no, we'll take the naked photos later of this girl. I mean, they're like, they're sleazeballs. Like they're like just flat out like porno guys, probably working for some yakuza or something. You know, like selling like uh, smut, smut. Yeah. And they, they are, and they're the leads of the story. They are our doorway into this world, <laughs> right? Of, uh, that'd be like of Lost if, Continents That'd be dragons. like if we started off Star Wars with Luke, you know, taking his mouth off some hut's crotch. Oh, no, no, that'd be like, start, like the no, first 20 it's, minutes it's of Star like Wars. It's more C-3PO and R2-D2 being smut peddlers. Yeah. It's, oh, yeah. Because the whole thing, it's, it's this weird device, Kurosawa, like Lucas stole it from Kurosawa, and I don't know if it's oh, yeah, Jim. From Hidden Fortress, Hidden Fortress, where they start with the lowest... 
with people who have like nothing to do with the grand story, who just happen to be the inmedia yeah, race or whatever. Yeah, they just happen. They they end up being entrapped in something even larger than them. So, except they're sleaze. Yeah, it's basically so. Far. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, too. Did did you did you show him that? No, no, no. Don't show him that video. <laughs> uh, the other one. And I do want to say, Makoto, played by. Yoko Fujiyama, who is really sort of the lead female in the story, as it turns out, Jackie Elegant, is pretty much a stone-cold fox. I mean, she is really beautiful. I think, I believe she's still alive. I looked her up, and uh, she's still alive. She was born, I think, in 25, and uh, I think she does uh, theater, and I think she does classic Japanese theater as well, uh, from what I've read, so... Very cool. And she's great in this. She gives you a character who's like consistent and sane to follow yeah. <laughs> throughout pretty much the entire plot. Um, and not a sleaze. Uh, so, and not high side. <laughs> and not high side. So, basically, you know, th- things are afoot. It, it, kind of the overall arc of the early part of this story. You know, we, we set up these characters. You got the rear admiral. He knows of an individual. And, and you know, the first half of this movie is basically the search for this captain who went missing at the end of World War II. Chukunji. Captain Chukunji, uh, played by June uh, Tazaki, who was great as the uh, the news editor in Mothra vs. Godzilla and he's, you know, he's been great in other films. But this is a really prominent, like, lead role for him. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, he's not in the film for, like, yeah. you know, Well, this is where, 50 like, minutes. the political and also technological aspects of the film start to arise, where a conversation between Kasume and Mako, uh, Jinguji's daughter, who neither of them have seen each other in 20 years, and she presumes is dead, they, uh, you know, just talk about, you know, Katsumi briefly mentions, you know, the patriotism, and yet at the same time he, he sees, like, the error of Japan's previous thinking, how it didn't behoove the country at all. And he is uh, interviewed uh, by the Mu agent or... Uh, in. By Kenji Kenji Sahara, who's asking him about a few submarines, uh, like massive submarines built by the Japanese Navy in secret. Uh, And this is actually taken from a real page in history. Japan uh, was not having the atomic abilities of the United States or Germany, was looking for a way to take down the United States, and they had an idea to create submarines that could launch aircraft. And they did. They built, I believe, three submarines that could do such things, so underwater aircraft carriers. So this is kind of playing with that. So he's asking him about these submarines, and uh, uh, Admiral Kasume says, uh, no, they were lost. They were all lost, including uh, Jinguji. And his, it was the and I, it was like the A four hundred one four hundred two, and then the four hundred three, yeah. which was like the one step before the Atragon. But it was they didn't know if it was ever made. But one of them was lost, like the prototype. Yeah, was like lost. Yeah, and uh, and and the captain was was aboard that one, and it was like sort of he 
uh, mysteriously the, he, disappeared. He disappeared, and it's, the language is difficult because it's not like he didn't defect. Yeah, well, he, no, still, he, he, he pushes just, it. He pushes it. And the other thing is, I should we should repeat that the the guy. The whole beginning of the movie is a bunch of chases. It's a bunch of different chase sequences. These people are going to be chased. These people are gonna, but basically, when, who's chasing this guy? And there's one guy following her, and there's another guy following me. And what it comes down to is that uh, the Admiral is, and Makato, his sort of, uh, who he is sort of a guardian of, um, they're the ones being chased. Yeah. And, and Kinji... Uh, Sahara, who plays the reporter, and we don't know he's a Mu agent at this point. He's just a reporter, and he's asking him about, like, so what happened to this guy? What happened to the submarines? And when he forces the issue, finally, the rear admiral is like, look, he deserted. Okay? He deserted. And, you know, like, like sort of this, I don't want to talk about it anymore. All right? I've said all I'm going to say. Uh, and he said, I don't know about any of those submarines. And, yeah, um, presumably, and at that point you see Makoto ship, walk you know? in, and you realize, oh, Makoto is this missing captain's daughter. Yeah, who he's been basically a, after the guy deserted his. He's he was his commander. He's been the guardian for this, this mm-hmm. you know, uh, a wall captain for twenty years. Yeah, the the rear admiral Kazumi has, uh, you know. Worked directly under the captain, and we're, we're sort of led to believe that the rear admiral just sort of volunteered out of honor to just uh, you know raise the captain's daughter, and uh, and they kind of became a family. And there's this very convenient picture of the captain <laughs> and like you know Makado <laughs> when she was like four or whatever, and they do have a brief conversation about how can you just leave? Like how could he have left me? You know. To, to and been abandoned his family for war, and everything, really everything you need to know about the movie, they they talk about at the beginning yeah. of this scene. I mean, that's you know that's sort of the polite fireside chat version of the politics of that's really brought yeah. out to like ludicrous yeah. <laughs> levels at the end of the movie. But so what everything you call, this you would be know. like the thesis. Yeah, this is the, the thesis. Yeah, so the rest of the movie is, yeah, it, it's just like Japan you know, needs to let go or it needs to change yeah. like that, that, that patriotism is important and certainly an important part of their heritage, but it has changed. And where are we now? Yeah. Um, so yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff that happens. There's another Moo agent number 23, uh, who is, uh, Sarazawa from Godzilla. No eye patch this time. Yes. We should know his list. <laughs> we should know his name by now. We do not. Uh, but he kidnaps the rear admiral and uh, Makato and uh, Hatanaka at one point and attempts to like just take them to move right then and there. And if you're watching this movie, it seems like the type of scene where it would be like, oh, they're just waiting because he, he basically they do the, the you know what they did in the first very first scene of the movie where they're in a cab. And the two perverts uh, photographers are following them yeah. uh, in, in another car. Because they're just trying to get some yeah. hot shots. Yeah, they just yeah. want shots of uh, Bacato. Like, like, God, why are they driving so fast? Yeah. I mean, they're trying to, you know. Yeah, in the midst of their drooling, they finally realize, oh, wait, wait a minute. These guys are speeding up. <laughs> right. That's how they get pulled into the plot proper. Yeah. They're just following her. You know, they have no connection at all with the rear admiral or any of this other stuff. They just want more pictures of her. And frankly, I think they would have sold 
sold out Japan in like two seconds yeah. just for right. more hot shots of like <laughs> naked chicks or whatever. If like, the Moo Empress was Betty like... Betty Grable's going to show <laughs> us her ass? Good. Here you go. Hirohito, come on out. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, they take him to like... Or the you know Agent Twenty Three, Mu Agent Twenty Three, who again is a different dude than the other secret reporter Mu agent with the Amish beard. Different character, okay? Yeah. It's a lot to juggle in your mind. Try just you M- know. M- much less inconspicuous. <laughs> yeah, uh, he takes him. He, he kidnaps like the four main characters and and takes them to the beach, and he's just sort of like, ah, I am waiting for like the transports to arrive, and I just have this gun. And it's it's a very sort of inconsistent scene or ambiguous as to the Moo agents and really all of the people of Moo's their powers. Yeah. Because first, the camera assistant, you know, afraid that he's going to lose his boner, <laughs> uh, he's like, I don't like this. This isn't taking sexy, sleazy pictures of Mikados. Tries to hit the Moo agent uh, with a wrench and he grabs it and he's like... Uh, the people of Moo have special powers. And then, you know, the, the wrench grows red hot or whatever, so he can heat it with his hands. Mm. But then he also has a gun that he pulls on him. He's like, you guys are, can, you know, you're all coming with me. And then uh, Hatanaka, like, just gets in a fist fight with him and disarms him that way. And so, like, you, like... And then, it doesn't make sense. Like, why when if he was when he's fighting Hatanaka, why wouldn't he just burn him yeah. and overpower him? But like he maybe he can only use that charge attack that's like a video game well, or something. The, he can only use it once an hour. He ends up suddenly like eventually it ends up like somehow it's like Well, Kasumi gets the gun. Right. He grabs it and that basically puts what, And the next 23. thing you know, the guy's like Fuck you, I'm running to the water. And he yeah. just yeah. jumps into the Fucking water. ruins this great and just like, like, just jumps in the water and starts swimming away. Like, fuck you. And, like, <laughs> and it's it's really kind of, I mean, it's goofy. Because you see out in the water about, I don't know, like half a Two mile miles out, away. Yeah. It's like some boat or something. And it's like, these people aren't mermen. You know what I mean? Like, these guys just out there, like... Doing a swim, you know, like, and, uh... Well, maybe it's part of their special And then powers, they're kind of looking know? at him like... He uses heart who's propulsion. this guy yeah. just going... Who is this it's guy? A, it's an extremely awkward kidnap attempt. And, and they, it's, it's, he briefly explains, yes, we're from Moo, and it's just like, oh, you mean the, you know, underground legendary place? Be like, ah, yeah, yes, yeah, you're yeah. well informed. You know, I'm going to kill you now. Every, uh, everyone instantly knows yeah. about Moo. It's great. Uh... <laughs> And <laughs> it's like with Spectre, you know. It's just like what Spectre? It's the da 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 da. Oh, okay. It's the super secret organization that everyone knows about. <laughs> um, so, like the next day, they're at the police station talking about like this, you know, Fisher Price, my first kidnapping attempt, <laughs> and they're like, "Hey, we got this super strange package delivered." It might be a bomb. It could incinerate half a city block. Why don't we open it in the same room with all these primary suspects who are our only lead to what the fuck is happening? And, and by the way, we'll on the package. In the corner. We'll and, <laughs> and what's it say on the package? There's only one word on the package. Moo. Moo. <laughs> and a very great must graphic be for us. There. Yeah, yeah. Funny enough, in Japanese, moo means nothingness. Really? Yeah. The director Ozu... Uh, this was not by choice. This is what the studio did. When he died, uh, I believe the same year this or the year after this film came out, they on his gravestone they just put "moo" on it. Nothingness. I mean, that's that, it. it's actually extremely, uh, you know, 
if that's a very appropriate name for the Moo, because they definitely are the architects of their own destruction. Yeah. I mean, they are the Richard Nixon of Lost Continent <laughs> societies. They definitely bring this shit down on themselves. They tell these people exactly how to defeat themselves in, in this scene. I yeah. mean, they, they, they open up the Moo thing, and it's Agent 23, yeah. and he's saying... On 16 millimeter on 16 film. millimeter film, and there's this wonderful sort of... They get all the generals together, and they get a couple of the key civilians involved, and they have them in the screening room. Oh, that's right, that's right. And they do this travelogue of, of moves. Gotta sort of admit, quick, they have a really nice publicity oh, uh, department. It's great. <laughs> it's great. They spared no expense, you know. If they would have done this in the 90s, I'm sure Richard Kiley would have been narrating it, you know. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> and they, yeah, they're like, this is Moo, you know. Fuck we, you. We, 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 fuck you guys. <laughs> we used to be the rulers of the planet, and then the continent became lost for some reason. Anyways, funny thing about it is, is we want the rest of the planet to basically be sub- submit to us. And we're we coming back. Coming, we're coming back in a big way. You know, don't... Just like, like the Threedles. We're taking over the we're world. We're taking over. Don't underestimate our powers. And, you know, there will be penalties for not obeying us. Blah, blah, blah. Same old meg- megalomaniac. You know, not necessarily empty threats, but like... As close to empty as you can get. <laughs> well, it's a terrible threat. Because yeah. it's the... Included in the threat, included in this mission statement of, like, we are your your new overlords, they mention the captain. They they mention Captain uh, Jinguju. They don't mention the Atragon. Or maybe they do mention the Atragon. They definitely mention, like, the 403. Yeah, they're like, you're hiding something from us, and we want that thing. And they, they say this is the only thing that could destroy us. Yes. It's like, you idiots! Yeah, this would be like... Not, they were not savvy. I mean, this is the thing. I mean, the whole movie, I have to say this, because I kept thinking this afterwards. It's like, this is where it's like you get hit on the head gradually with, like, the political... You know, it's like a dream, you know? It's like, you're your dad, then you're your mom, then you're you, but then you're the car, then you're... You know, it's like, you're, it shifts all over the political statement. So, you've got on the one hand... It's this, I mean, like, you don't have to be, you know, whatever, Dean Rusk to figure this thing out. It's like, you're, you've got this undersea lost kingdom, which used to be kind of uh, an empire, a really strong empire that was all over a lot of geography, and they have dreams of coming back and resurrecting this great empire... And, you know, it's like, oh, I wonder who we're talking about here, you know. And, (laughs) right. And, you know, it's like very clear. And so they just, and so their whole thing is like, we're going to take over the world. And when you finally do see the weapon, I will get to that. But, like, when you finally do see the weapon, it's like pretty badass. But on the other hand, you're kind of like, okay, what do you. Like, again, like, as an adult, as a kid, you always buy the, hey, they're taking over the world. They want to take over the world. The Spectre wants to take over the world. Somebody at Blofeld wants to take over the world. And so he's like, finally you get to be an adult. You're like, I'm 43. It's like, you can have it. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like you want it? Okay, how about Oklahoma? You want that, too? How about Oklahoma? How about Bakersfield, motherfucker? You want Bakersfield? You can have it. A couple of Basque restaurants, Buck Owens, little country place, and, like, you know, some... <laughs> 
some chemical pollution. Out there. Like, 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 what are you gonna? And by the way, like the whole movie, you sit there and you're watching them, and they got these submarines, they got boats and stuff. It's like, okay, so you're gonna take over the world. And like, it was like, all right, you'll get the Solomon Islands with that weapon. I got no doubt. The Marshall Islands, Micronesia, fine. American Samoa, okay, maybe you're gonna get like North New Zealand, you know. Papua New Guinea, something like that. But, like, you'll get, like, what do you get? California, you get to California. Maybe you get to Hawaii, you get to California. What do you get? Monterey County, maybe Mendocino County. But do you think you're going to make it to fucking Baker, California? you think you're going to even make it as far as San Bernardino with those fucking submarines? You're not going, you're not going anywhere, man. You don't know what are you going to do? Are you going to take those submarines and ride them on land? You don't have the technology. you got a bunch of people in tunics doing dances to your fucking CEO God. Who, by the way... Gets dispatched with great ease. And we don't is, know if he's dead or maybe he just takes a nap. And this is basically what uh, Japanese Admiral Yamamoto, one of the architects of Pearl Harbor, said basically to his government, wink, wink, you know, saying, well, we could win against the United States as soon as we walk into D.C. and demand terms. Basically, he was saying, we're never going to get to D.C., like, it's not going to happen. We can cause chaos for a while, but this shit ain't happening. Yeah. They have oil fields in Texas. That's just Texas, you know, and steel mills in Oklahoma and, you know, all this shit. We are a very, you know, we can cause damage, but we cannot take this on. Uh, and so, like, the Japanese Empire, they were basically instruments of their own destruction. It's just like, well... Let's let's attack somebody who has more firepower, more resources at their disposal than we do. More land, more people, well, yeah. more, you know, I mean... And this is while they were already fighting in China. Like, China, who is... You know, China, as a country, was, like, split apart and, like, lots of internal fighting between warlords and communists and nationalists. Uh, but even they were putting a stop... To Japan, like Japan could only get so far into China before being stopped. So it was this idea: well, we're not making enough headway here, so let's attack somebody even bigger. And and you know what? It's like you got it's like another one. You got the guts, but you don't have any brains. Yeah. Because the thing is, it's like by this point in history, I hate to say this, but it's like the British Empire was already collapsing. It had already, like, really, you know, they lost this piece of land and this piece of land and this piece of land and this piece of land. And, I mean, already by, like, 1915, even prior to World War One, you had guys writing poetry about, like, the demise of the British Empire. And, oh, well, you know, and, like, seeing it coming, this, you know. Well, there's a reason. Because it's a fucking island. It's one small island trying to control the globe. And that takes a lot of brains, and it takes a lot of guts, but sooner or later, you're going to run out of steam, and you're just going to be doing... By that time, by the time you got to World War II, the fact that these people even got, you know, into a mentality of, oh, we're going to be able to do this, it's like, listen, maybe you can get China, maybe you can get Southeast Asia, maybe you can get a few islands, but it's just simply unrealistic unless you're planning, like, a thousand-year war, and if you are, my friend, you know... I got news for you. Nobody can do that. Nobody can... You don't have... You just can't. It's impossible. It's impossible at this point. It was impossible then. It's impossible now. Um, also, I, I, again, I just want to reiterate the fact that they talk about and then they give specific instructions on how to defeat themselves. Yeah. 
This would be like if Superman had like a public service announcement when he first came to Metropolis, and he's like, "Now, whatever you do, Lex, <laughs> Lex Luthor, I'm looking at you. Do not, I repeat, do not, uh, you know, hit me with some kryptonite because that 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 will actually kill me. That's the one thing that'll do it, but that will kill me stone dead. Which why? Which is why so, I am demanding <laughs> the. The, all the kryptonite in your possession to be delivered to a safe spot at least half a mile from me. I'm sending out these 3 by 5 cars with the, the exact spelling of kryptonite, its general location, its description, how, how, much it's, uh, how much it'll cost you, the five best places to buy it. Do not use this stuff to defeat me, because that would be... Boy, so, <laughs> you know, don't, uh, uh, um, so, you know, uh, the Mu Empire, again, the architects of their own destruction yeah. and, and a very thinly veiled uh, representation, possibly, of uh, Japan yeah. and, and their, by, by their, thin, ru- their ruinous war. By thin, we're talking like, you know, anorexic. Uh, like anorexic <laughs> thin. Like, like, like one ply, yeah. okay? Like like 45 thread count, all right? The military, in an odd twist, decides to do nothing about this, immediately denouncing it as a hoax, and then the UN denounces it as a hoax. We are, we are shown through, like... Okay, in, in the video of that Moo shows, they show their empire, and they show this really interesting shot of sort of these, it's, it's, you know, it's obviously Flying it's an underground trains. sort of cave-like thing, but it's this interesting mixture of, like, uh, newer technology. It, yeah, it looks like the, the, like the combination of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and Fritz Lang's, like, Metropolis. Mm-hmm. Because you've got these, you know, you have caves, but flying out of the caves are these flying, like, cable car things that don't seem to be attached to anything. They're mm-hmm. just, so they've <clears throat> conquered, you know, levitation and hovering. And, and you know, the, their technology, how advanced it is... Is, is sort of... They still can't get yeah. the flying submarine thing happening. Yeah, they can get flying kamikazes. The flying, flying. drilling submarine. Um, so they... Right. Uh, okay, sorry. <laughs> so their video concludes, and like, please do not find this general, and if you do, ask him not to use the sub. <laughs> Don't bring it up. Trust See me. See who play. Trust <laughs> me. Also, you know, have this general, specifically, like, have you know, have all the world governments surrender, but especially, you know, Captain Jing, Jinku Ju, Ji, yeah. you know. Uh, so... Later on, after this, you know, video is, or sorry, after this film is rejected as a hoax, we are shown through a newspaper montage that Venice and Hong Kong have been destroyed somehow. We don't actually see this happen, but it's newspaper montage. So there is some legitimacy, sorry, there is some legitimacy to uh, Mu's threat. We also see... Um, a boat, a boat uh, explode at some point. Um, typical, you know, it's like sacrificial fish, it's like boat. fishermen or something. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. It's well, it's 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 a sh- shipping freighter of some kind. Sakizawa must have been, yeah. you know, like allergic it, to seafood. And it <laughs> seems like it's this one freighter with the same crew that always gets killed in every one of these things. <laughs> like the War of the Gargantuas, Mothra. This one, it's always the same ship. 
and the same like five guys who are always like what and they they always die at the like the end of the first act and the beginning of the <laughs> second act just be like no 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 there's some legitimacy here like stuff's gonna happen later on here we'll just blow up this fucking boat to see like it's it's gonna happen Malaysian Carl blow up the boat <laughs> yeah Ew. um so at this point the UN sends in their worthless. Uh, submarine, uh, nuclear entitled, submarine, nuclear submarine <laughs> entitled the Red Satan. Yeah. But we want to discuss the fact that the sub from America slash France and Russia is 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 referred to as the Red Satan in this film, and what that might mean. I think it was just to sound badass. I mean, I don't know if it was supposed to be. Um, I think it was like dispatched by the UN, but it's from the United States, but. But there's like a, well, they had to find, a German officer on oh, yeah. that fucking Well, they boat. had to find like any white person they could find to play American because it's not like a Japanese person sitting in the theater saying, hey, wait a minute, that guy don't speak English, right? It was definitely unmistakable where like everybody's speaking English in an American way and all of a sudden this one guy's like, They're like Captain, Captain, I was wondering <laughs> if you could tell me. So, I'm going down too quick. <laughs> um, what do you know about witches? <laughs> uh, yeah, Udo Kier is uh, <laughs> Udo Kier <laughs> in his first role. The pressure is too much. <laughs> Damn it, Captain! The hull will break. Um, and Udo is exactly correct because that's exactly that's exactly what happens. The Red Satan apparently it's explodes. It's, it's it's piloted by a bunch of soft soft. Uh, brained uh, nincompoops, mouth breathing. You know, Be like, hey, yeah, because they, they just go they deep. go to we their might, own death. We might Look, bro- like like the, the and and what they they spot is the basically the Muians, the people of Mu, have retrofitted the uh, the missing four hundred three submarine. Okay, now, just to be clear, because I know we're throwing a lot, around a lot of stuff here, the four hundred three is not the Atragon. Okay, yes. this is a separate super yeah. submarine that cannot fly, but it's it's a submarine, and and the Muians have, have taken that they've they've stolen the blueprints and they, you know they they've retrofitted it. We kind of see inside Mu at one point. There's this guy with a terrible beard and even worse teeth who like pulls out. The uh, the blueprints to the like a centerfold. Yeah, yeah, and he's it's just like, like, let me look at it again. Yes. I must drool over this. Uh, so, Commander. <laughs> also, I'd like to mention briefly when we see inside the Mu Empire, and there's much vigorous dancing. There are more people like in a single shot in this than uh, like, and I know I said that in the Mysterians, but I really mean it for this thing, like. Like when they showed the dancing ceremony of the Muin people, it's like six hundred people. I mean, it's insane, it's and, like the, a, and the set is like five airplane hangers. It's <laughs> it's straight out of Demille or like Marion C. Yeah. Cooper. I mean, it's it's a it's like their wet dream come to life. It's completely insane. Yeah. It's just so much money. Plus wide angle lens on top of that. Yeah. So this is just space on top of space. And, you know, massive again, synchronized dancing. Yeah. And, and and you know, we have seen like how the you know, how the series sort of degenerates and we, we, we see where it goes and then sort of the bottom line of course is Godzilla versus Megalon where they go again to the the low budget version of this, which is Seatopia, when Megalon's being summoned, and it's like twelve people. 
you know, yeah. and they're they're dressed in trash bags. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, and, and the leader is like this guy who has a fucking navy tattoo <laughs> named Antonio, and yeah. they don't even bother to cover up the fucking tattoo because maybe they can't afford yeah. like the extra you know twelve inches of cloth to put over his arm or whatever because it wasn't in the fucking budget. Okay, that's nineteen seventy three. This is nineteen sixty three, and they are throwing like so much money into this, and it's not even important at all. Yeah. You know, there's just like Hey, we want to show some and spectacle for the for the sake of, amount it. of time. Tremendously yeah. limited amount of time. They got a huge amount of extras doing the scene, synchronized dancing. I'm not saying it was like it was complex. I mean, for you from May and from May to get this thing out in the theaters in December, and like they really put together a very complicated piece of cinematic uh, machinery here. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the Muians, uh, after much vigorous dancing, the they start following through with their threats and back to the the, the pursuit. Uh, another chase scene. This time between the two subs, the Red Satan. It, it follows the the modified four hundred three, uh, and it basically follows it too deep. Um, and it, you kind of get the impression that the uh, captain of the Red Satan is insane or mm. doesn't understand, like, the basic naval principles of pressure and yeah. the hull because he basically kills his entire crew for no reason. Uh, <laughs> it's like, they just, they simply go beyond the pressure limits of their sub and explode. The Moo people don't, like, shoot a laser. Yeah. Manda doesn't attack the sub. Uh, you know, Manda's still asleep at this point. Uh, so it's like, the sub just just explodes on its own due to poor captainship. Yeah, very unfly for a white guy. That's, uh... Yeah, yeah. So, base. I mean, what I got from the scene is that the the UN and and sort of the Caucasians are sort of imbeciles. I yeah. mean, they're they're they're, they're trying, Duh. but like the Western world, it has neither the wit or you know the know how to yeah. effectively you know pursue this opponent and defeat yeah. them. It's got to be an an in house job. Yeah. You know, it's basically what so, it's implying. Cut to. Uh, Admiral Kasume, who's been like, who's talking to a bunch of generals because he, I guess, as a former military commander, whatever, since he's been, since, since basically the enemy believes that he is the key to their own destruction and or victory, whatever. Uh, because he's the last known contact yeah. of the captain. Yes. And they think, so, he, they think he knows so they where yeah the captain is. so they talk to him about the fact that they don't know like what to do now because it's clear that their threats are not as empty as they thought and they don't and the submarines can't reach that far and the idea of using the h bomb they don't know how it'll work under that pressure whether it'll do any damage to moo and plus the moral implications of using a hydrogen bomb so it seems clear, like, if they could only, if we could only find the Atragon, we could, you know, we, we, we'd save everything. It's our one chance. So then Q, you know, guy coming in, ah, sir, we've captured, you know, a, a moo agent. Yeah. So they all rush to the prison, which is conveniently, like, 
and I think it's door. I think it's in the same building. Yeah. I think it's the next room. Yeah. So <laughs> and then they find out the guy who is dressed like an old Japanese soldier basically says, you know, Bakero, I'm you know not I'm not from Mu, I'm Japanese, you know. And he says It's it's Kumayama yeah, from Mothra versus Godzilla. And they're like, you know, oh wait, Admiral Jinguji is still alive? And she's like, Yes. She's like, Can you take us can you tell us where he is? And be like, No. But I can take you there. Cut to Pan Am. Yeah. <laughs> so we've got Admiral Kasume, Mako, uh, Hatanaka. We've got not suspicious reporter. Yeah, Umino. Yeah. Slash Mu agent. Slash Kenji Sahara dressed like Amish golfer <laughs> for True Story magazine. <laughs> so you've got all of them together. In a Pan Am plane, and somehow, we don't know where they land. Wait, let's, let me just repeat this. Yeah. So they brought the pornography guy. Yeah. Like, he's still in this thing. <laughs> like, just, they, I, you know what, listen, I know you just want, I mean, like, I'm this not sure if they ever figured out, say, like, hey, wait, you don't have hey, classification. You know, we can ask you, so what do you do for a living? <laughs> oh, I want to take naked pictures of your fucking daughter, buddy. That's what I want to do. But I just happen to follow along, you know, I help that guy get the... The guy, the Moo agent, get that guy back in the ocean, swim the thing, and, you know. I'm officially here involved. I am. What, I'm, 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 what do I do it here? I'm fucking involved. I'm it doesn't involved. Matter. I'm it, coming. It, it doesn't matter how I'm involved or why I'm involved. I'm involved at this point. I'm coming along, you know. You knew what you were happening. getting into when you crossed paths And, in me. fact, I won't say, because it's coming up, but, like, he actually is a key part of the main reluctant hero's moral deliberation. <laughs> oh, he's yeah. absolutely key to this movie. His like, presence like makes actually, no sense. His presence like, actually does kind of save the day as a catalyst in a weird way. Anyway. Well, so cut to from Pan Am to a motorized boat, uh, which is totally not at all being tracked by tiny buoys being dropped by a... Uh, uh, you have Mr. You know, Ducktales, <laughs> Flint, Flintheart Gloomgold, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> who is totally not dropping buoys nonchalantly from the back of the boat like candy. Then cut from that boat to a a small canoe, like two or three small canoes. They keep going to smaller yeah. and smaller modes of transportation. Yeah. <laughs> I thought if the montage kept on going, they'd just be on like a small raft they made out of trees and tied together with twine at some point. And where, you know, I had the sail was just a napkin that they were holding up. <laughs> <laughs> we gotta go even smaller. Now we just swim. Whoever lives, that's it. So they end up in this area which, uh, our, uh, non-suspicious, uh, Reporter points out, oh, wow, this is an interesting island. Notice that they have all the elements you could possibly need in these mountains to create a super flying, flying submarine <laughs> battleship. You know, With an ambiguous multi-name. Yeah. <laughs> and then Q, uh, old army jeep, arrives with military men who take them... And then drive them to this base. And they're all in World War II Japanese naval uniforms. Yeah. And other, I mean, it's just... Perfectly bleached. Yeah. Right. And, and, and they look... Looking good. They yeah. look new. Yeah. They look brand new. That's what we in the biz call faptastic. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. 
Um, and this is all, this is about 46 minutes into the movie. Yeah. So, and we, we, I think, well, yeah, we're finally, they have dinner. Yeah, they have dinner, and guess who arrives but uh, Chinguji? He, he happens to be there in his freshly bleached, you know, whites, you know, navy whites. He looks exactly the same as he did in the photograph that from he carries 20 years around ago. from 20 years ago. As he hasn't age. gained a pound. <laughs> his mustache and hair are still jet black. His uniform looks newer. Yeah. In fact, like, Ken O'Hara's character yeah, as uh, Kasume seems to, like, actually age. Like, something about the island has kept them young. Maybe it was all the young men. I don't know. Uh... <laughs> 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 something in the coconut water something in the coconut water but, it's the uh, Japanese semen yeah 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 that's what yeah exactly yeah. exactly yeah um talk about a mouthful but um yeah so anyways so uh we're speaking of sperm <laughs> we're talking sperm <laughs> let me just say what we're talking I, about I, is like jism <laughs> sperm it's called a lot of things by a lot of different people <laughs> just like the ultimately <laughs> Hot vanilla pudding. We know what we're talking about. You know what I mean? If you thought that we were going to have a witty wordplay thing and subtly imply jism, no. For the record, Pac-Man uncontrollably guzzling cum. Okay? That's it. Tons <laughs> yeah. of it. Just dropped out of the sky. <laughs> um, All over. You need umbrellas. We'll be forward. Don't forget to swallow. Anyways, so uh, Chinguji immediately recognizes his daughter, uh, Mako, that, or he has a brief you know, bout of incest. It's, uh, it's actually, the moment is actually kind of like a David Lynch, Angelo Battle, a menthe moment. There's this, like, moment, like, uh, like where they're, like, kind of looking at each other and stuff, and anyway. So, anyway, <laughs> so then he starts talking, and, uh, you know, it's just like, oh, yes, I haven't seen you in 20 years, too. Hey, want to see my new toy? Uh, so he takes them, he takes them to, uh, this base, under the base, and, uh, what's there? Why, it's Kaite Gunkun, the Gotengo, or as... We call it the Atragon. And he actually says, it's crazy, he says it in the same sentence, and he actually says it's the Atragon or the Gotengo. I like think he gives, that might be the subtitle. He gives both names. In yeah. the subtitles, he gives both names in the same sentence. He's like, it's either this or this. You can choose whatever you want to call it. Choose your own adventure. <laughs> way more confusing. It's just like, just pick a name for the fucking sub. Alright, so this is the cum guzzler. But here's what <laughs> it is. It's, what for, it's the flying, drilling, diving, thrilling, thrilling submarine. That's what it is. Hey, hey, hey. It's a giant dick metaphor. Yes. <laughs> oh, boy. And it looks, uh, I will say, you know, if you're following along with, you know, with the episodes, our, you know, a couple episodes ago we talked about um, the the Mysterians. Yeah. And there was a couple of pieces of interesting military hardware in that. Of course, there was the Markalap Farps. Yeah. Uh, but we're not talking about that. Near we're talking, wet Farps. We're talking about the flying battleships uh, Alpha and Beta. Yeah. The Gotango... A.K.A. the Atragon looks a lot like Alpha, with just with a drill on it and a couple of like like buzz submarine saw, circular things, saw yeah. blades on the side of it. Um, it. It's just this is where it's like okay, this is where I got the full Jules Verne vibe. I mean, yeah. 
the cover, uh, you even, I mean, the, the clearly the design of this thing, it doesn't look like a submarine from the 40s. It looks like uh, steampunk. It's got a steampunk, it's clearly yeah. got like a Jules Verne design, and it's where sort of Journey to the Center of the Earth, uh, you know, meets uh, the Nautilus. Mm. Yeah. Uh, because, I mean, it's really what it is. The whole thing is just a hybrid of the drilling machine and the Nautilus and uh, 20,000 leagues under the sea. And it can fly. Yeah. It also sort of looks like one of the mutant modules from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles <laughs> that Krang and his underlings would use to transverse from street side all the way down to the Technodrome uh, on, under the ground. Yeah, you know, not 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 to draw attention to themselves at all. <laughs> exactly. It's just like, oh yeah, let's just bury like right up to the city zoo or whatever. Yeah. No one will ever see this. Yes. So uh, this inconspicuous uh, machine... Jinguji then gets in with his crew and they begin to test. So they bring it in and they fill the thing with water and then they leave. And then they everyone else goes outside and they see the submarine rise, then fly. Yeah. This thing flies. Yeah. And so it, it's a vertical takeoff yeah. and landing. Kind so of like thing. Harrier Jet style. And it's, it's very cool the way Honda does it because no one talks about it flying. You just think maybe it's going to you know, go around in this little pond or whatever, and then it just sort of takes off. And again, at that point, it's just like, well, okay, now what you're seeing is a fantasy. That's yeah. a, that, that is impossible, you know? So it's it's very, yeah. very cool. The and dick is out. It's, you know, it's, <laughs> it's all it's all there for you to see. Now we're, now we're in extreme science fiction territory, if we weren't before with Moo. Uh, this is also where you find out, uh, as far as plot-wise... You sort of get to because there's this moment where it's like it takes a few moments for like so uh, why are you guys here anyway uh, visiting me out on this uh, you know twenty year a wall experience you like find out two things one this guy didn't desert because he was afraid of dying this guy deserted because he could see the writing on the wall that the Japanese were going to lose the war and he was like no way <laughs> um. <laughs> I'm, I am leaving, like, basically, like, the rest of these guys are pussies, <laughs> I'm the real warrior, and I'm gonna fix this thing, so that whenever I can, we're gonna, like, take back, you know, our empire, we're gonna beat everybody, and we're gonna win World War II, yeah. even though it's 1960, you know, even though it's gotten to the mm-hmm. 60s, or whatever. And Ken O'Hara's like, uh, listen, fuckface, uh, the war's over now. I've retired. I have a nice company. I have income. I can feed my family. <laughs> He's basically like number two at the end of the first Awesome Powers. Like, you want to take over the world, but there is no world anymore. It's just corporations, you know. And, and, and uh, I love this. The, the fact that the captain is like merely weeks away from completing the Atragod. You know, it's 1963. He's been working out for 20 years, basically. And the first order of business is, like, leveling New York and, like, the eastern yeah. seaboard and, like, starting World War Three. you know. And this is the guy who, you know, in a short amount of time basically kind of becomes the hero of the movie de facto. Yeah. Uh, so watching it now in America, it's very awkward because he's, like, at first, like, I'm going to fucking destroy America. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And it's just I mean, like, and the guy, the guy, the you know, his former colleague who's come out, you know, 
Ken Yohara comes out, and he's just like, look, you know... I mean, he doesn't really lay it... He doesn't really hit him over the head. He's kind of like, look, you know, the world, it's really different than it was. You it's know? just like, it's he's got to think globally, look, not And then he just tells him about the whole thing, and like, look, this is undersea, the moose, and this, and that, and the other. And he's like, no, I'm not defending the world. You know, screw the world, I will only defend Japan. I will only defend Japan. That's like his key... Like, and at that point, you know, Ken Yohara's like... It's a mere Han Solo-like moment. It's very... He's basically... I was thinking about it. He's sort of... It's a subspecies of the reluctant hero archetype. You know, like, there's Achilles in the Iliad who is, you know, kind of selfish and like, no, man, my (laughs) friend's been killed. You know, like, I'm not going back. You guys haven't given me what I wanted. And until his friend gets killed... He doesn't show up and just, like, beat the shit out of the Trojans. Mm. But that's the whole story. You're waiting for that. Or Rick Blaine in Casablanca, where it's like, no. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been screwed. I didn't get the girl I wanted. The world can go hang itself. And then you finally get to that point where he's convinced. And this one, it's a little different because... This guy's got an agenda. The agenda is not like, no, 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 you guys screwed me. I'm just going to stay here out on the island while all my myriad seamen and, you know, hang out with the submarine. It's like, no, he's got, look, I'm planning on taking over the world and winning World War II for the Japanese. And you're saying that's totally over and there's some undersea kingdom out to attack the, you know, and then, you know, it's like he doesn't. He he finally leaves. I mean, Kenyahara kind of like pushes it, and the guy's like, "No, yeah, final, no, 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 no." And like he like kind of leaves the scene, like like you know, and a his nine year old daughter leaves the room so upset. And then what the uh, the pornographer? <laughs> this is the key yeah, scene. He, yeah, she, is... they eventually go out, and they're out on like out there on the island in the tropical sort of scenery, and he's. Kind of the the captain comes out there, and there's his daughter, and he's still in his naval whites. And you can see that it's like, oh, man, you know. And she sort of turns around, and it's just like, you know, why did you, you left me for this? You know, what are you doing? And now you're being even more stubborn during, like, what is your problem? And, he, and she kind of shames him, but he's still not totally shamed until... The master of shame, the pornographer, <laughs> sort of shows up after she exits stage left. <laughs> and it's one of these, like, Hollywood conversations, like, where the pornographer's like, you should be ashamed of yourself, man. That's your daughter. Like, what's your problem? Or whatever. And, like, goes into this whole thing. And then you see that, like, the guy's kind of like, what do you know about it? Or whatever. And then, you know, he's just kind of like, you know, I... <laughs> he doesn't know anything about it, but he's somehow like, well, I'm on this island with a guy who left who left to fucking win World War II 20 years ago and been in a flying sub. I don't know, but you're getting ashamed pretty soon. You know, and then he, the guy gets, you know, he, he leaves, and then you see that there's that moment of realization but you're still kind of like, you're still not 100% there. You don't really know. 
But finally, the one thing that he just can't live without, even though he lived without her for 20 years, is his daughter, who is immediately kidnapped. Immediately. <laughs> Kenji Star, I was like, no, I'm not sure if we've completely, as a Moo agent, I've completely ensured the destruction of my own, you know, agenda here. I think what would push this captain over the limit, why don't I kidnap his daughter and her pornographer stalker boyfriend? That's right. It's, and it's and Kenji Star. And blow up his base. Yeah, the base, <laughs> kill, not the ship. Kill most Just, of his he men. He blows up everything except the boat. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice job, asshole. <laughs> How about go aboard the sub and plant some of the dynamite there and blow that up? You know, you're right there. Now, I think i got to say something else that I want to say is you've already had a couple of submarine moments here. You've already had some ship warfare. You've already, And this brings up the issue of, uh, first of all, the, the our exposure in America to essentially this kind of entertainment was not just the release of this movie, but there were two shows that basically covered this territory. One in particular, which was Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea. It was a movie. It was Walter Pidgeon, and it was directed by Irwin Allen, who was later the Disaster King. And I think it had to do with like global warming, strangely enough, uh, even back then. And then they turned it into a show with Richard Basehart and... Um, David Hedison, whose daughter is now married to Jodie Foster, and in that show there was the, I, I can't remember if the submarine was called the Nautilus, but whatever it was, it was this cool submarine show, and it, they had this thing on the show, which was what? It's called the Flying Sub, and it was this yellow, circular, like, you know, looked like a one of those Walkman CD players kind of thing, you know. And it was yellow, and it would, like, every episode, it's like, oh, I don't know, we gotta get the flying sub again, we gotta get, somebody, oh my god, where's the flying sub? We got donuts, and there's flying sub, oh my god, there's something happening, you know, gotta get the flying sub. They use the flying for, sub for everything. They go, they're like, we gotta go two blocks, let's get the flying sub. It's like I, living in California. Hey, hey, Bill, I forgot to take back the VHS copy oh, of King shit. Kong Lives. Flying the video. Sub. Get the flying, flying sub. sub. And, you know, who's, where's the keys to the flying sub. It's like, you're barely <laughs> even in the damn submarine. I remember, like, all I remember was them getting in the damn flying sub every episode to and milk. Like, <laughs> to go get milk or whatever. It, like, you're in the middle of the Atlantic. Fuck it. Let's take the flying sub. So, <laughs> my kids at soccer practice. Flying <laughs> sub. Flying sub. You know, it was the answer for everything. It's like the cell for all wounds. And the other thing was that I realized the second show, which was kind of in the same vein, it was like elemental. What we were talking about earlier before, it was like, there's the elementals, you know, undersea, the ocean land, space land, fire land, ice land. You know, these things like where it's like just pure elements are great for kids shows. They're very visual. They're very colorful. And uh, you kind of want this stuff. So the one thing is the was Star Trek. So it's Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Star Trek. So it was one in the sea and one in the space. But one thing about these shows and about these movies, every time no matter what, is there's always the direct hit. You got a direct hit. They're in a battle, and then there's the hit. And it's a stupid little set in Burbank or someplace, <laughs> and, or in Tokyo or whatever, the Tokyo Tower, I suppose, probably. I don't know. And in this set, right there where there's the direct hit, the cameraman, he's got one thing he has to do. He's got to know how to do this. He can, like... You know, he can do a lot of things. He's got to know how to use some filters. But what he's really... Well, you know, he's maybe got to do a little anamorphic thing, you know. But what he's really got to know how to do is shake that fucking camera. And those <laughs> actors, 
What they need to know how to do, I don't care if they study with, you know, Stella Adler, Richard Boleslavsky, Stanislavsky, you know, Orson Welles. They have got to know how to do one thing, and that is throw themselves to the side uh, and grab on uh, something like, oh, shit, oh, they just got hit, and throw themselves to the side. And in fact, like, if you, like, woke up and you just were, like, dementia patient, and you found yourself on the set... Of like a, a submarine or or a spaceship, and you weren't sure what you had to do. <laughs> the only thing you would have to remember is that at some point, when that when you get the cue, you got to throw yourself to the side and act like you just got hit, and that's got to happen. That you you got to know how to do that. It's like you want to get your SAG card, you got to get that thing done. In fact, I think like Philip K. Dick wrote a story about it called like you know. Uh, after dinner, my solarian. Uh, uh, he actually didn't. I made that up, but he, but he should have uh, about a guy who didn't know. Anyway, that's there's a lot of that in this movie. Of like, oh, there we go, we got hit again, and you know. So I thought I'd throw that in. There. One of the great all-time, certainly '60s sci-fi traditions, and carried through. Uh, there, there is a video where someone has gone through and put the uh, oh, yes. the yeah. motion correction for the raw footage of Star Trek. Of Star Trek. Both Next Gen and Original, Next Gen and original series, series to series. turn down for what? Yeah, yeah. So you, they, they correct the angles and they eliminate the shaking of the camera. So you can literally... <laughs> you can just see these actors just standing there and it's just normal, you know? Yeah. It's just nothing is happening and you just see William Shatter be like, oh! And just sort of like, you know, throw himself into his seat and be like, oh! You know, it is, it will change your life. So they blow up. This whole, they blow up the everything around the Atragon, not blow up the Atragon. Giving the so, giving the capital the exact correct amount of motivation, yeah. along with like you know kidnapping his daughter and porno boyfriend. Porno boyfriend. It's like okay, now yes, now I will fight. <laughs> yes, I have to fight now, of course. Without my daughter, what am I? Just um, a man with a ship schlepping a ship. Um. And Agent, uh, sorry, the Umino Kenji Sahara takes, uh, you know, Hanataka and uh, Mikato to Mu and introduces, and we are introduced to the, sort of the, kind of the, the leader of the Mu people, which is the Empress of Mu. It's an actress known as uh, Tetsuko Kobayashi, and uh, she has a pink wig on she looks yeah. like she came right out of the 80s yeah uh, with that wig it's pretty crazy or even like the 90s like or like redo of the 60s <laughs> the, like the whole austin powers movement she looks like a refugee <laughs> from that <laughs> you know um just that, one, that, that one person <laughs> at the college campus who is like oh right okay pink hair that, that, that's cute um they show off their kidnappies and they ask the empress what to do and she's like sacrifice them to manda or whatever and you know it's another one of these dancing sequences with like 700 people in a wide angle lens that goes so on for like a good five yeah, minutes yeah, because they can do that yeah yeah it's busby berkeley man that's serious <laughs> busby berkeley 
um, they take them to like a dungeon and they're like, oh, and uh, we'll just uh, open up the, you want to see Manda? Open up that door right there. And they open up the door to a blue screen. But uh, <laughs> projected on that blue screen is it, it, it is Manda, and you know, for as useless as a monster as Manda is, the the reveal is pretty cool because it's just like it scales, like it, the side of its body is pressed right up against the side of this window, yeah, door. So it's this odd reveal. It's just like, wait, what is this? It's and just then, scales, yeah. yeah, and it's and it scales to scale because they're standing right next to it, yeah. So they look like gigantic scales. Um, I liked how Manda is their god as well. I mean, you realize, like, Manda is who they worship. They do these dances to and everything. And it's kind of like, wow, you know, like, you know, you grow up like an Episcopalian kid, you know, or whatever. And you get this, okay, this is God. You don't see him. You don't know. Okay, there's Jesus. But, like, they're like, no. No, this is our god. He's there. We can see him anytime we want. He's dangerous, and he will eat you on our behalf or whatever. Um, Manda is one of the classic, is it Tsuburaya or Tanaka, who, like, adds, like, if the, if the plot of one of these movies at this time did not have a monster, he would just insert a monster. That would be, uh, Tomiyuki Tanaka, the producer. Uh, Tsuburaya, who was great at special effects, did not insist upon it. It was just more or less the fact, it was same with, uh, Mr. Honda as the fact, like, oh, you're really good at that. Let's keep you doing that. You yeah. know, and think. Honda thinking of himself less as an auteur than, say, Kurosawa, you know, was more than willing to just go with it because he enjoyed the fun of it, and he had his own amount of recognition, maybe not the same as, say, Kurosawa or Ozu, you know, but it was still like, you know, that's what you do. You were, it was definitely like, I, there was definitely like, a, I think, a contractual requirement of some kind, I seem to recall, but you were talking well, about grafting. It's well, like, it, Tanaka, it's a grafting. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Tanaka <laughs> wanted to add, added basically, like, even if the script didn't call for it, he would add it, like in the movie Goroth, which is about a, mo- a you know planet that's colliding with Earth. There's this fucking walrus. Yeah. Why is it there? Because Tanaka said there has to be a giant monster, so they had a giant walrus in it for, for like five seconds which they fucking murder because it's like this has no purpose so. it's like grafting a toyota on a grapefruit tree I yeah this is like, like wait what why is this you know why is this why is this thing here what is it doing like what is its attacks like how is it how is it a threat is it, it's the same thing as uh mogera in the mysterians that's another classic yeah. thing uh where it's like, yeah, we just need a monster. Like, like the script Monsters is, is equal the script out is the done. monster. The script is done. It's complete. Ah, but let's write two more scenes and add a monster for no reason. Um, so, you know, Manda is the latest in a long line of, of, of them. Um, so we cut back to the Mount Miyahara, which you may remember as the... It was either the place... Yeah, it was the final resting place of Godzilla at the end of the return of Godzilla in 1984. Mm. It was the volcano that they they put the, the seismic charges around it and finally trapped Godzilla at the end of, of that film, also known as Godzilla 1985. Mm-hmm. Jump back to 1963. Uh, this also seems to be the staging ground or, or of the uh, the flying corpse of the moo people and the term ufo is thrown around a lot and what it means is unidentified flying object and i think this is the most accurate use of the term ever because 
After watching this sequence, I can conclusively tell you I do not know what these things are. Well, They're kamikazes. They're uh, like drones they, or something. Well, yeah, because you see like the people in the suits. Yeah, the, from 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 the beginning. But these the, things the like crash suit. into things. They don't shoot lasers. Well, they just I mean the ships are, are the people. Do they just can they just fly? Well, they're like they look like they're not okay because you never see just, them. Let's up describe close. them. They look like Plan Nine from Outer Space's flying saucers, like two plates put together, spray painted silver, but instead of just kind of flying, like actually flying really fast into stuff and very far away and very quickly, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the the actual look of them is. You know, whatever, but the the sort of the, the matting of them in and the superimposing of them into the shots, very well done. The animation of that, very convincing, and uh, yeah, well done. And it's the only thing that led me to believe that maybe they had a shot at Oklahoma if they wanted. <laughs> I mean, it was like, okay, like, they definitely got, you know, this is sort of like, you get the feeling like a long-range Messerschmitt, kind of. That's sort of the the general... Uh, or zero, but on, I mean, there's nobody in them that we can see, I don't think. There's, um, there's kind of a turn of the, the classic, like, Honda, which he repeated so many times, uh, evacuation scene, and a scene that is, in some form or another, in, like, ten of these movies, where it's like, you see, okay, all the stock footage of the downtown area, of, like, all the houses and stores, everything, the storefronts, people just barreling out, emptying out, they've got all of their, you know, luggage, they've got their kids, they, mm-hmm. you know, they're all dressed, they're all ready to go, some of them pushing carts, some of them driving cars that are, like, stacked with furniture or whatever, I don't know, I guess they're moving, too, and this scene always ends with, like, Okay, yeah, they, they, you show it for a while, you show them maybe getting on a boat or getting on a plane or, or a bus mm-hmm. or whatever, and then it's over. This is the only time where that's an actual scene that furthers the story where it's like, yeah, they're all evacuating, and they go down to this harbor, and they get into this big ship, and you're like, okay, yeah, I've seen this before. And then one of these fucking moo things flies into this, uh, this, this, this ship you know, this boat, and it explodes. Mm. And, like, all the people you just watched, like, evacuate, all got killed. And you're just like, wh- wh- what? <laughs> you know, like, they, they never, <laughs> like, you just, I mean, that's just a very, uh, you know, and it, it's absolutely effective. And so they're like, hey, you don't want to fuck with these boo people. <laughs> you know, not even Godzilla ever did that. Yeah. You know, he never just, like, waited for, like, one of these buses to, like, fill up with school children and just smack it, you know. <laughs> At the end of the scene, so uh, yeah, again, it's sort of you know, obviously it's it's a fantasy and, and whatever, but, the but key, it's still there's they, some teeth to it. They're not just attacking, but this is the other thing. Okay, so they've kidnapped the guy's daughter, they've destroyed his island, but left his key weapon intact that they've already confessed <laughs> will destroy them. <laughs> to the planet, <laughs> and now they could have gone for Oklahoma. They could have gone for San Diego or Hawaii or the Aleutian Islands or Greenland or any number of places. The one thing is, this guy, he doesn't want to do anything for the world. He wants to do it only for Japan. And so they make the really genius decision. They go for Japan. And then they start attacking Japan. And that's where those drones going. They're hitting Japan. Yeah. So they finally 
solder off, you know, the remaining sailors, sorry, seamen, uh, solder off, like, whatever metal bar was obstructing one of the, uh, what, the The, f- the phalange was intersecting with the buttress. Yeah. And they sever it. <laughs> so they open the hatch and plunge themselves in, uh, and then Jingunji turns to, um, Rear Admiral Kusume and says, uh, I've changed my mind, uh, you're right, about everything. I'm done. Let's go kick some ass. Let's go destroy the it, Moo Empire. I so, do want to say that was not, I want to make a preview, that was not the greatest reluctant hero comes to, uh, comes to the decision, you know, comes around uh, to the right decision uh, build up I have ever seen. I mean, it's sort of like, yeah, man, I'm with you. And it's like, that's it. It's really quiet, and he just kind of looks at him like, yeah. But it's not like, like what I was really looking for is like Wagner, forest murmurs, a lot of like Sturm und Drang in the guy's head, maybe a montage of him like getting drunk and banging his head against the wall, and then finally them attacking Japan, and him singing on screen and going, no, I won't, and then maybe Koizumi going, but you must, no, I won't, you, you must, and finally like them like hitting Tokyo Tower, and then finally he goes, fuck this, and then like you said, like that would be the build up, instead it's just like, okay, let's do this. And I was like, what? And then they have a scene where, like, is this before or after, like, they show downtown Tokyo just collapse with no... They leave. They leave. Then, while they're leaving and heading towards wherever, while they're heading towards Tokyo, the Mu Empire says, oh, by the way, we're going to destroy, like, the Brooklyn Bridge, and we're going to destroy all of downtown Tokyo. So, uh, at midnight. And so, like, the army is called in, cue montage, and they, like, surround the big corners of the city, and they're, like, waiting. And as soon as midnight hits, instead of attack from, like, above or the side, the city just fucking caves in, like, beautifully, like, just... So much destruction. (laughs) And it it just, and it's not... Monsterless destruction. Monsterless destruction, and it, you know, what it looks like is sort of like if they had the footage of Ghidorah destroying the city without, just taking out all the laser blasts, and just having the buildings all just sort of collapse in on themselves. I mean, it's, it's, it's really sort of eerie and kind of weird, because it's just like, there is, there's no explosions. Yeah. You know, it's just... Very simply, it's just all the buildings just collapsing and falling into a gigantic pit. Yeah, and it's sort of unnerving to watch. And it's it's uh, I don't know. It's you know you it it seems like they were filling a quote of like you need giant destruction seeds in this movie. It's like well, this is literally okay. This is like you are checking it off the list. It's like it's just buildings falling apart <laughs> you know and it's uh anyways it, it 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 helps push the threat of the moo into that final thing where it's like okay now we're in fucking charles bronson mode sons of bitches must pay kill on site hey there Destroys. let's kill some moo <laughs> um moo for you <laughs> at one point the pornographer steals a couple of uh, highly sticks. explosive sticks that just happen to be around, I guess, the torture chamber. Yeah, yeah. Um, very like, hey, weak, <laughs> very weak scripting there by Seki's. Uh, oh, I picked up these two things that we could use to do our escape. Again, the move probably left them out or told them, hey, whatever you do, don't use these two sticks of dynamite. <laughs> That's to, why they to failed take the as an empire. They probably told all their enemies or foreign gods, you know, just like, you know what? 
fuck you. <laughs> just whatever you do. It's like the opposite of Burr Rabbit, who tells like the guy, don't throw me right. in the you know the thistle patch. These, you know these Moo people are fatalists. There's more fatalism in their instructions in this movie than there is in the directing of Transformers Four. Okay, self. There, there's there are self. Loathing, <laughs> the, the self-hating move, self-loathing. You know, uh, on par with Age of Extinction, self, <laughs> self-loathing from directing. Uh, anyways, so yeah, the uh, they uh, so Hatanaka yeah. and uh, Mikado uh, and a couple other of uh, people who were just like kidnapped by the move at some point and being used as slaves. They kidnap the inter- the the Empress, turn the tables. They dress up in their, uh, in like the suits or whatever. Forcing and, her to strip. <laughs> yeah, forcing her to strip, which we do not see because this is not a super atragon. There's no nudity in it. And, um, <laughs> they, they open the door or whatever. They flood the hatch. So that we've got like the main characters plus the empress, empress, anyone who was kidnapped, uh, and then the Atragon is very nearby. Um, but I think one of the guards presses the wake up Manda button or something, or was it, is it the pornographer dude who accidentally? No, she like, just the, touches the man, the, the inconspicuously, yeah. you know, just like, Oh, I'm just going to lean against this button. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Okay. Uh, yeah. 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 Like, oh, guess Manda's awake. Yeah. Oof. And a, a word about Manda's physical appearance. It's, Manda's just a, a classic Chinese dragon. Yeah, that looks like a party favor from a from. Red and it's age. blue. He's, he's an under. Yeah, he's like an undersea snake with a mustache. Looks like a luck dragon whose hair has fallen off, basically. Yeah. Um, the luck dragon. <laughs> That's the one I got stuck. Who'd <laughs> be like, hey, it's gonna be all right. All right. As uh, long as I'm here, you'll be fine. <laughs> and uh, the. They make a break for it, basically, but Manda... They're, they're trying to get to the Atragon from... You know, the Atragon's underwater, and it's trying to get into... They, like, they stop short of going into Mu proper. They're, yeah. out, they're near the entrance to Mu. They're like a quarter yeah. mile away or whatever. So they shoot smoke bombs at Manda, which I guess obscures his vision enough, even though it's clear with his like cookie monster eyes he can barely see it all so like the 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 the, the, the everybody escapes gets onto the atragon they leave and then jinguji says you know let's just uh or the empress says you know you'll never defeat us you know even if you kill me you know you'll never stop us even if you destroy our hearts well, what's the heart? Well, it's located here, here, here. Yeah, like six... Oh, yeah, it's six <laughs> miles underneath the palace. You'll never reach it. And Shinguji is just like, fuck oh, that shit. Yeah. I accept so the challenge. Like, guess who has dies? a drill bit on the front of their yeah. sub, bitch? Like, <laughs> this is, it is the one... It is kind of a good scene because it's sort of like the, the whole movie, you're waiting for this guy who's like this crazy old Japanese soldier and like when she's kind of like, oh, yeah? Well, I declared war. What are you going to do now? And he's what like, I'll tell do? you what I'm going to do. I'm going to beat the shit out and kill every single last <laughs> one of you motherfuckers. That's what I'm going to do. They're not even going to remember the words Moo or Atlantis or anything ever again. And, I mean, it's... It We're going to start by killing your god. Like, you start talking to a soldier. It's like one thing you tell, like, she's kind of like... It's like he's discussing peace terms, and it's like, you know, what are your terms? And she's like, we're never going to surrender. He's like, okay, that's my, that's my favorite word in the language. <laughs> um, so they go down, and 
2,000 leagues under the... Sorry, 20,000 leagues under the sea style, Manda tries to wrap itself around Atragon, and they turn on the conveniently located, like, electrical Manda repulsor uh, device. Manda is then, you know... It's not even that powerful. Yeah. It's like 500 volts or yeah. something. Manda is as threatening Manda as, like, is. droopy dog. <laughs> be, like, be like, oh, that hurt. I'm gonna go over here. There's now. also... <laughs> let me back up your say. There's a scene in there where he... Like with at one point you see sort of the the sea vehicles of uh, the uh, the Moo people, and they kind of have this laser that is really fantastic that spreads out in sort of this conic form, and it's it's just unbelievable. But you finally see at some point sort of a fight. I mean, I think this is where it happens where you see that submarine like get out there. And just start like nailing these battleships. their battleships, and just like one after the other. And I mean, you see the theatrical. And at this point, also, you know, you've had music in the movie, but at this point, the music is like that kind of Japanese triumphant, very brassy, like you know, almost kind of cornball. You know, and like he's. I mean, it's just they're just tearing Atragon's tearing everything apart. And when you finally see Manda come out, uh, and then, like, the secret weapon. When What's the secret weapon on the Atragon? It's the... Sperm, I'm sorry, freeze the absolute, ray. It's the absolute zero gun. gun. It, yeah. Which is basically a freeze gun. And it, you know, whatever it shoots, it's, you know... It's it very gets hard. It, well, it, 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 it shoots the freeze gun on Manda, and Manda either in some sort of, you know, is is hurt by the freeze gun and goes away and rests on a rock, or maybe it's just a coincidence and at that exact point, Manda wanted to take a nap and fell asleep or whatever, but Manda is, is taken out of commission. He's, he's either killed or he's frozen. He's no longer a threat. Manda, she came, she saw, and she got fucked. Manda. <laughs> So, again, so continuing with the Freudian metaphors, uh, Jinguchi then drills deep into Mu, like very deep. You get to see this yeah. thing. It's like, ah, it flew, it's floated, now it drills. So yeah. it drills into the heart, like deep into like the uteral center <laughs> of, <laughs> of, of the Mu, and then unleashes an army of semen. Uh, well, yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, the, the guys from the Atragon are dressed in special, and they all have the absolute zero, yeah. like, but it's weaponized like a rifle, yeah. and they just murder everyone on yeah. site, <laughs> Charles Bronson style, like the end of Death Wish 3, <laughs> and, um, you know, it's a, it's a total holocaust of the, you know, the who people are wiped clean out, and they, and they freeze the heart. Yeah. Uh, Which of, is like a geothermal sun, basically. Yeah. It's the You see it at the beginning in that first scene where they send the film up. The agent sends the film. And like, this is how we power moo. It's this undersea sun thing that we've got, or whatever. And he... Anyway. Yeah. And, they, and it looks like the inside of the Hoover Dam. These gigantic generators, you know, these these giant gears all spinning. Like, I'm talking like they're like 60 feet in circumference, you know, this type of thing that Simon Belmont would be comfortable jumping on platforms in, in Castlevania clock towers, you know, like huge pieces of machinery, tooth gears and things. And, and the Atragon 
uh, you know, freezes it and and has enough time to to back out to pull out of you know the six miles that is drilled into the Wu Empire and kind of surface uh, up um, at a safe distance and you know you kind of cut back to the heart of the Mu Empire and everything's just sort of frozen and sort of quiet for about... There's a, there's a beat there where it's just sort of like... Hmm. And then it's everything explodes. Yeah. And then there's the other thing is the Queen. There's sort of an after thing where like the Queen realizes... The Queen of Mu realizes it's all over and who knows what they were going to do with her. Uh, if she was going to end up in some UN prison or something like uh, or whatever, the Hague or something, tried as a war criminal, uh, but she ends up kind of when nobody's looking, running and jumping off the ship into the water to go, you know, presumably die with her kingdom, uh, and you know the. Manda and the high priest uh, and uh, the the four hundred three submarine, which surfaces and is frozen and then explodes, also <laughs> so effectively wiping out all remaining threats, I guess, except for yes. the flying saucers from Mount Miyahara. But moves pretty much done. Yeah, they're you know uh, their effectiveness strategically is neutralized yeah. at this point, and the the effect that they 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 use for the for the sort of this apocalyptic explosion. Um, if anyone who is a fan of the Tokyo uh, Monster um, like Masters Collection DVDs that were released uh, around 2007, they did the uh, they had Rodan and War of the Gargantuas, and there was also uh, as a bonus feature there was. Uh, this documentary about the sort of the lost art of Toho like filmmaking and one of the things they talked about was uh, this technique they would use for these giant explosion scenes it was really this, so clever and very very cool and basically what it was was they would fill up a tank with water and then they would get various uh, like paints red paints and brown and earthy colors and, and dirt and, and, and pieces of earth and then they would turn the camera upside down, so it would be filming like this this tank. Mm-hmm. And then they would just drop the paint in. And what you would see is, since the camera was upside down, of course they light it properly. Is this explosion upward? Mm-hmm. Uh, and was obviously it was just the drops of paint, you know, disseminating through the water. But what it looks like is this giant hellacious explosion just bursting out of the ground defying all the laws of physics and gravity because there's so much girth you know yeah, it's it looks like, like you're at the top of an atomic bomb mushroom cloud looking yeah coincidentally up. that's the same technique they used in uh the made for tv movie the day after uh Interesting. About the nuclear because the united states army uh would not allow they wouldn't allow the production to use stock footage of atomic weapons to superimpose, of actual atomic weapons to superimpose blowing up the cities for some reason. So they had to make their own with paint in a um, in a pool. Yeah. So And it works really, really well. Um, so that's it's basically... It's definitely a great device. I, I do want to yeah. bring up one other thing, which is... Back to the prescience, the prescience of... Um, this plot. Sometimes I I go through this thing where I wonder if you know, uh, you know they would say this is the. I don't know. I see. I hear this phrase 
all the time. The lat, you know, post hoc, prompter hoc, whatever the fuck it is. Causation does correlation does not equal causation, or whatever the hell it is. I hear that a lot in arguments nowadays um, from various people in political issues and everything. But sometimes I wonder when I look at. Uh, you know, people blame video games for this. Oh, the kids is only violent because of video games, things like that. But a lot of times, in the last couple of years, I've been watching a lot of these older movies, uh, and I noticed that some movie predates some event in history where you go, wow, that's kind of remarkably similar in a weird way to the event that took place. Now, the most recent one, I guess, is The Siege. I remember seeing the siege a few years before 9 yeah, 11. Denzel Washington, like, Bruce Willis. And now it's not Benning. the same thing. It wasn't yeah. like, oh, in the story. But it's New York. Now, granted, New York is sort of a, you know, it's like Tokyo. It's like, well, if we're going to make a destruction movie, let's have it be New York. They're not going to choose Sacramento. You know what I mean? It's going to be, let's get New York, you know. But uh, similarly, uh, about a year ago, I watched a movie with uh, Dennis Hopper and, strangely enough, Casey Kasem. The name escapes me, um, but it's he's a motorcycle gang leader, and he's basically Charles Manson. The movie came out about a year before uh, the uh, the Manson murders, and he's like kind of like a. I mean, he's really you get the similar like this is the guy is Charles Manson. Like this is who, and then uh, you know different, not exactly the same, but like like what I'm saying is this stuff is floating in the consciousness. So here you have this movie. Uh, about, I mean, when you get to the key part of the story, it's like undersea kingdom, former empire dreams of retaking over the world and their empire uh, in a way that anybody would perceive as sort of hubris and foolhardy. And, you know, at the same time, you know, what's going on? Well, the, the key guy they need to get to help them against this kind of crazy, uh, you know, cult-like... Uh, political militaristic kingdom they've got to get this guy who's this old Japanese veteran from World War II who never kind of gave up those attitudes on behalf of his own country and in fact escaped and deserted at the end of the war so he could plan the big return the big comeback and it's sort of you know they they have uh, sort of the whole movie for for kind of a you know just a movie that's like an adventure action adventure sci-fi movie uh it's got a lot of kind of political emotional processing that you know is really blatant it really hits you on the head well here's the thing it's 1963 the movie's made the guy was missing for 20 years the whole story is about this veteran who's been missing 20 years uh, along with all his other soldiers who were like planning the big comeback and you go oh that would have never happened and as it turns out it did happen in a weird way not the mysterious island and the submarine but in fact in uh the in 72 they found this guy uh on guam on the island of guam who named uh shoichi yokoi uh, who had been like hiding out in a in basically a hole for 20 years since the end of the war, like engaging in weird little guerrilla warfare, and even more so, they thought, oh, that would never happen again. Well, as it turns out, it happened again. And in 1974, the more famous one is this guy Hiro Enoda, uh, who was out on this island, this Philippine island called Lubang, and he got sent out there in like 44 with a bunch of guys. And they said, engage in guerrilla tactics to subvert the enemy. And don't surrender and don't kill yourself. And so, 
he was out there with like three or four other guys, and the war ended, and they dropped leaflets, and they said, look, war's over. And he didn't, you know, I was like, no, it's just disin- just disinformation. It's just a disinformation campaign. So he stayed out there for years, basically, with his boys, engaging in guerrilla for- warfare. They killed a bunch of Filipinos out on the island for years. Like, mm-hmm. 1954, like, one of the guys, one of his guys got shot by a bunch of fishermen, and... Like, anyway, finally, about 1974, this guy, who is this Japanese hippie named, uh, 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 Norio Suzuki, uh, decided to go around, you know, he's 1974, I mean, it's the 70s, by this time, I mean, it's not even the 60s anymore, it's like the watered-down 60s, it's like, you know, like, it's like, when I think of 1974, you know, I think... You know, like a Logan's Run. Like, I, I, everything looks like Logan's Run. Like, I picture, like, growing up in the San Fernando Valley, where I was like, it's sunshine, everything's just, like, covered and hot, and, like, there's no, like, you can't see a bra for, like, no matter how hard you look. There's just no bras available. Like, everybody is just in, like, you know, tank tops, and there's a lot of terry cloth. I mean, it's not just for towels, it's your entire wardrobe. And, like, you know, and so I felt like, yeah, man. And uh, when people were, like, uh, smoking dope, they didn't even buy, you know, people like dime bags of this. Back then, they bought them on coffee lids. The measurement was a Folgers can lid. So I'm getting a lid, man. Like, and I remember these people, and they were, like, into, like, I remember one sister, she was, like, an anthropology student. She was dating some archaeologist, an anthropologist. One of them was into, like, uh, those uh, submersion saline tanks, you know, for, like, spiritual experiences sailing tanks. I mean, this is the 70s, okay? <laughs> this is who Norio Suzuki is, okay? And Norio Suzuki decides in 1974, he's like, hey, man, I'm going to go on a quest for Hiro Onoda, a panda, or the abominable snowman, in that order. Like, literally, that's what he said. I'm going to do this. And he might have known about that. I mean, they, they might have heard about this guy for years. I think they did. And they'd already tried different ways to get this guy. But it was Suzuki who kind of took the risk to, like, wander around in the jungle of this Philippine island. And finally find the guy and be like, no, man. the boy, This hippie. And he was described <laughs> later on as a hippie by... Anoda, when, you know, and Anoda's like, yeah, the hippie found me, and he kept saying, like, the war was over, but I just couldn't believe, so what did they have to do? Well, just like in the movie, who did they get to, like, get the guy? Well, they gotta get his commanding officer, just like in Atragon, they gotta get, you know, except in, you know, Rear Admiral, instead of Rear Admiral Kazumi, in Atragon, they got this other guy to show up, who was his former commanding officer. The guy worked in a bookstore. <laughs> he's like, and, he, and he shows up, and he like basically comes with orders from like Hirohito, I think, or like the son of Hirohito. That are like, look, these are the three <laughs> orders. The war is over. You must come home. Put down the gun and stop shooting the local Philippine population. You know, and they finally got the guy. And in fact. Like, it was a big deal, because he had been, like, frankly murdering Filipinos all the way up until, like, I don't know how late, possibly even the late 60s, and so Ferdinand Marcos had to pardon the guy. He had to, like, actually issue, like, a pardon for this dude, and... And that was no that was no uh, weird matter because even in the early sixties, when the if you ever listen, the, the Beatles went to play the Philippines, 
And they sort of screwed up and made a couple of diplomatic mistakes, and they barely made it out of there by plane. I mean, like, if you listen to the uh, anthology and they talk about that one concert in the Philippines, that was like, that did not go over well with the Beatles and their sense of safety. So this was an amazing event that the guy got pardoned. But the bottom line is, there really were these guys who were that crazy and out there. And, like, I mean, you think about some of the nutty, you know, we, we have sort of an archetype of the nutty veteran who just can't let go of the war. But you kind of go, okay, we understand that in this day and age with PTSD and everything and like it exists. But I can't think of anybody in our culture, our kind of American cultural archetype who's like, yeah, man, like, this guy's planning on it and going back to Vietnam and taking it over. Now, there was Missing in Action, the Chuck Norris movies, but that wasn't like, hey, we're going back to take over Vietnam. It was like, hey, we're going on a quick target mission to get some POWs out or whatever. Oh, it's Rambo a, 2. First Rambo blood. 2, right, First, first Blood. blood. Two. But you don't picture it like that. So it's an interesting concept, and yet again, this movie's 1962. I don't even think they knew about these guys, and sure enough, what happens? These guys turn out to exist. Unaware, an island, you know, where they've been hiding out since the end of the war. So that's all I have to say about that. Amazing. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. It's not, it, you know, it's not over as far as the Atragon or the Gotengo is concerned. It's not over as far as uh, Amanda is concerned because while that is the end of the movie, I mean, Moo blows up and the Empress drowns and the pornographer comforts uh, Makato. Um, you know, cue credits <clears throat> or cue the end. Uh, Manda would uh, return in in uh, Destroy All Monsters, and then in stock footage via stock footage in Godzilla's Revenge, and then the Atragon and Manda would return in Godzilla Final Wars. And Atragon would also return in the animated film Super Atragon. Uh, from 1996, a two-part made-for-TV, then-to-video release, uh, which was scored by the Warsaw Symphony Orchestra. Uh, you know, an interesting, like, take. I think it was trying to be closer to the novel, but at the Manda same... is nowhere to yeah, be Manda's found. Yeah, Manda's nowhere to be found, you know, so it's this odd... It's beautiful in its own right. It's got, like, The action interest, is incredible. Yeah, you know, and it's got an interesting band of characters uh but yeah i i don't really think it could at the same time achieve this amount of depth that this film has done so but not a bad try yeah um we will not be talking about it but uh, other than other than mentioning that right there um i think we should probably wrap it up um all right so yes nathan bear I am Michael Kelly. This is the Godzilla Pod War Hour. We are on Facebook. We are on Twitter at Michael Kelly. Sorry, my the tag on Twitter is Michael Kelly at the Godzilla Pod War um, Hour, and then we are also on Tumblr at the Godzilla Pod War Hour. Um, so you know, let us know. We're on iTunes. Every episode is for free. For free. For free. F-R-E-E. You know, rate us, like us, comment on the pages, share us, you know, if you like what's happening here. And if you like what uh, Mr. Jack Kapler is bringing to the equation, let us know. We'll bring him back. And if you don't like it, you can tell him not to bring me back as well. That's yeah. fine. Look, there's no such thing boy. as bad publicity. Yeah, Jack can take it. Okay, yes, he's got he can thick take skin. It. Yeah. Um, 
Thank you, Jack. Thank, thank you for, thank you for having me, amazing. gentlemen. Yes. It was really a pleasure. It was very, uh, well, we're very cans. much appreciated. <laughs> it was, uh, yeah, man. Caps lock comes through big time. Uh, I guess that's really all I have to say. Uh, you know, we gotta we have to leave. That's it. All right. Well. Uh, until next time, everybody. You know, stay classy and happy hunting.